I think it's something that I uh, I have to work on. So. So we were we were saying. Um, um, we were actually starting off with uh, the question about what is the truth. Oh yeah, big question. And that actually the issue of the truth is um, more of an issue in Western societies than it is in Asia. And so when I'm talking about the truth, I'm talking about uh, things that actually can be verified as opposed mm -hmm. to truths that cannot be verified because if a truth cannot be verified, then what distinguishes that truth from magic? Yep. Uh, so um, basically... One of the reasons why the word truth has become so important in the West is because someone wants to pry it open and shove magic into it. So All where science. their actual truth has no magic, it's just plain facts, just the mm. facts. But that almost always we don't think of the truth as actual truth. Rather, we're looking at it more from opinions beliefs, viewpoints, and so a way of saying it then that the facts <clears throat> can be repeated and, and in fact are in the real world, and then there is a mental world, and that most people live in a mental world and that they think that they live in a real world, but uh, an example of this is reaction time. How fast is your reaction? Generally, it's in the range of about two seconds reaction time for humans. Why are we so slow? The answer is because we do a whole lot of processing to try to figure out what's going on before we finally respond to it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not always the case. No. There, there is the case actually of being touched. Because um, uh, an example of that would be um, <clears throat> a, a tender infant, a very, very young child. If their hand or foot touches a hot coal, that hand will be withdrawn immediately. Okay. And so that means that the nerves that are going to be moving the hand are actually in the hand also. Mm. And the child, in fact, uh, may take a deep breath and start crying four, five, six seconds later. Exactly. When the pain has actually registered in the mm. mind of the child. Uh, so the hand responded to it, and then it registered. So this delay time is what we're talking about here um, that is actually at the heart of the Buddhist teaching of Paticca Samuppada, that the way that the mind works is actually a sequence of events. Mm -hmm. Little little steps one at a time and that one of these steps takes quite a lot of processing time and that is a, uh, the one that's labeled as perception once mm -hmm. we sense an object on the outside then we have to make sense out of it and then uh, after we've made sense out of it then we react to 
the sense of things that we have made. In that regard, we generally don't live in the actual real world of the truth. We live in a mentally constructed reality. Well, I totally agree with that. Great. Because that's the way that the Buddha teaches. And we've got all of the Pali words about each one of those steps in there and whatnot. Now, we can use that as a stepping stone into the understanding then that people do not actually know the truth. They just merely create a worldview. 100% agreeing. So the worldview that people then create is normally of three kinds. Mm -hmm. One kind is the kind that the Buddha would call wrong view, which basically has uh, a catchphrase or a hallmark uh, statement, a one-liner, a mascot kind of phrase that would say, I can get away with it. That's the wrong view. I can get away with it, okay? I can either get away with it in a number of cases. One is because I declare that it's not wrong. Two, nobody catches me. <laughs> yeah. Three, uh, I can get forgiveness. Mm. Okay, and in all of those ways, we can get, uh, uh, get away with it. And so this is one's wrong view. Now, before we go too far, I would like to also say that each individual human being sometimes will move back and forth between these worldviews. We don't hold the same worldview all the time. We might, in fact, have one worldview at a football game and another worldview while we're at the office. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the second worldview to look at then is what the Buddha calls ordinary right view. And ordinary right view has that hallmark or that uh, banner line, that one liner is, oh, no, you can't. Get mm -hmm. away with it. Oh, yeah, okay. Get away with it. <laughs> oh, you can't get away with it. And no. this ordinary right view is exactly what our society is built on, uh, built on a set of laws, rights, rules, rituals, shoulds, woulds, could haves. And uh, uh, we all bring that into uh, a group or a set of rules. And that those set of rules that we have built up as society has two attributes to it. One is, is that it removes quite a lot of, but not all of, the chaos of life. Things are not nearly as dangerous now as mm -hmm. they once were that part of what society is moving forward, or as Martin Luther King calls it, the, uh, uh, that the arc of justice or, or the arc of the universe bends towards justice or something like that. Mm -hmm. Basically, what uh, he's pointing at is, is that people eventually begin to wake up and see okay. what's going on. And that as humans, we are doing that fairly slowly. But mm -hmm. some of the things that we have woken up to in the past, say, 200 years is slavery. Mm -hmm. But in the West, in many places, they haven't woken up quite yet to racism. Mm -hmm. Indeed. All right. So these are the kinds of things that we can see that are part of 
an ordinary right view reality that keeps the system going so that we can at least survive, but nobody is happy. Mm -hmm. Everyone struggles. Mm -hmm. And it is built on a hierarchy, and those people think that they can feel best, they can feel most secure by climbing that hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So everybody wants to be at the top or at the peak or the pinnacle of whatever mountain they uh, are trying to climb, mm -hmm. only to realize that there are others just below them that are grabbing and trying to pull them back down so that they can stand up on top. Um, and this is the uh, kind of the world that, uh, uh, that we have made for ourselves as humans. Mm -hmm. primarily based upon greed. Mm -hmm. But greed has an attribute, and that greed is that we, we want something to make us feel safe. We want to feel mm -hmm. safe and secure and satisfied, and we can't, so we want things so that we can feel safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that we do things in is that we go an indirect route to go. If we want over here, we'll sneak around all the way back and forth and here and like that and then come around and then we'll get there. But mm. the whole path of the Buddha is, no, let's go straight. The straight path is let's not mess around. Okay. An example mm. of messing around is, is that for many, many years, automobiles have been sold with pretty girls uh, on the showroom floor with the car. Oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't, did, I didn't, I didn't get it. They, uh, for many years, automobiles, cars have been okay. sold with uh, beautiful girls in beautiful dresses nearby, Indeed. trying to create the delusion that uh, you see the pretty girl and you see how you feel, but you're really confusing that feeling with the feeling of the car. So you want the girl, so you buy the car. Exactly. Or better still, it gets this way, and that is, oh, if you buy this car, you can get a girl like this. It's a mm -hmm. chick magnet, okay? Mm -hmm. This is the way that we begin to get confused, thinking that, oh, if I can buy this car, I can get that girl. Mm -hmm. But we still haven't gotten to the heart of the matter. Why do we want the girl? Mm-hmm. Why is that? What's the condition of that? Okay, and we begin to get really down to basic instincts, especially um, uh, the feeling of security. That I don't love myself, but I want her to love me is an example of that. So um, our society is set up on going around and uh, the issue. And we have how many laws? My goodness, they say that even the IRS codes is 80,000 pages of laws. So <laughs> we have so many laws that no one human being can keep track of them all for all cultures. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just, that's how uh, ridiculous it is. But so, we are supposed to know them. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, in America, ignorance is no excuse of the law. Exactly. No excuse. You can break a law and now you're going to get caught for doing it and you don't even know it's against mm. the law. Mm. Um, and that, of course, 
that has to be the case because anyone will just say, I didn't know the gun was loaded. Exactly. That's all they have to say and to get off. So that's the problem with that kind of system is, is that it doesn't solve the problem. Everyone still suffers. Mm-hmm. But noble right view, the third kind of view, is the kind of right view that is super mundane. It is noble. It is a factor of the path. It's not held by ordinary people. And this noble right view doesn't generally come to conclusions. It just is keeping the investigation going. They keep watching. They keep taking different viewpoints. This kind of uh, view uh, is recognizing that, in fact, the real truth lies in something more than my own point of view. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to check it out with other points of view. And um, therein then lies uh, the source of compassion, real compassion, where we can really see the suffering that other people have without having yet to be sucked into their suffering. Mm-hmm. That we can, in fact, by seeing it clearly and with wisdom, we can possibly take uh, correct and appropriate action that we couldn't take if we went into their feeling systems and felt as bad as they did. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't need two drowning people, <laughs> one trying to save the other. And so um, this is this new kind of right view is in fact the uh, the hallmark for the noble eightfold noble path. This is the view that comes first. And until then, you could say that, well, wait a minute, that means that there's got to be two eightfold, eightfold paths. The one that is ordinary, that ordinary Buddhists know about. And then there is the noble path that has this noble right view to where the regular path still has the ordinary regular right view in it. That's why people go from the ordinary world of what I would actually go so far as to call the Buddhist religion to come out of that and out of all of the magical thinking and everything that's associated with that and actually uh, go for the what the teachings of the Buddha is which are, in fact, these, this noble way of, uh, of looking at the world. And with that noble view, then we begin naturally to start practicing correctly the rest of the Eightfold Noble Path. Mm. And so this is actually the way the, that the Buddha constructs the path is that the noble eightfold path is constructed as an alternative to the, the world's ordinary right view, which is basically good and bad, as opposed to um, the wrong view is uh, there ain't no good and there ain't no bad. So while you're not looking, I'll just take what I want. They think that they can get away with it, okay? And mm. so there's a bit of self-deception in there. But there's also a lot of self-deception in the uh, ordinary right view because it has 
at the heart of it is the law of karma, the old law of karma that comes out of Hinduism mm. that has the quality of it that there are good actions that give good results and bad actions that give bad results. Okay, and that's the teaching except for one thing, and that is one of those kids in wrong view will say, wait a minute, I still can get away with it. Sometimes people do wrong things and they don't suffer at all. I can get away with it. And so that's when the, uh, the comma folks add a third line to it, and that third line is, and it will happen no matter what. You are bound to it. You will not get away with it. Even if the comma machine has to dig you up out of your out of your grave 300 years from now just to beat your ass, you're not <laughs> going to get away with it. Now, this is the, the view of ordinary right view, that you cannot get away with it. Where, in fact, the wrong view, people know that that right view is, in fact, got holes in it. And so the firmer we try to put on more rules and more rules and more rules, there will always be people looking for loopholes in those rules, ways that they can get around it, ways they get away with. And so this is what our society is built upon, not just ordinary right view, but it is an uh, ordinary right view that is a bulwark against ordinary wrong view. Mm. And it's a tug of war between the two forces, basically, between good and evil, as it were. And no one's happy. No one is satisfied. But Buddha teaches, oh, wait a minute, this thing about comedy that you're talking about? Wait a minute, wait a minute, let's look at this thing in detail. For one thing, what is it that defines a good action that gives a good result. Doesn't generally the result of an action determine the value of the action? And here's what I mean. If you buy stock in a company and the stock price goes up and you sell the stock, you've made money. So buying that stock was a good investment. It was a good action. But if you buy the stock and the stock goes down, and you sell it when it's down and you've lost money, now you consider that buying of that stock a bad action. And if you recognize that that's true in many, many cases that we do not know. In fact, we go around doing things in the hope that something good will happen, but we don't have any guarantees at all. An action can seem good and have bad repercussion. An action can seem bad and have good repercussions. You cannot know. Exactly. I, I would even say that good and bad are just human inventions. I'm getting to that. Okay. Mm. Here's the first example is the uh, situation of um, at the football game, they throw the flag, the penalty flag on the field. Okay. The referee, he throws that flag. When the flag goes out, Half the crowd jumps up and screams in anger. They don't like that call. And the other half jumps up and screams in delight. They like that call. 
So now we have the question, was that a good call or not? We can only go for, was it right or correct? But right now we've got 10,000 people on both sides arguing about whether it was the right call or not. And it doesn't even matter whether it was right and correct. It matters the reaction that the crowd had for it. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, that's uh, what the Buddha calls a mixed action. That, gave, that gives mixed results. And that most actions that we have are neither bright or dark solely on their own, but that all actions give uh, mixed results, and most actions are just mixed actions. Mm -hmm. But the ordinary right view is stuck into, oh no, doing good things will give good results. If I can get the city to build this high-rise building, then I will be a famous man in town. So everybody goes around with this kind of a right view of thinking, if I do something good, I'll get good results out of it. But a noble right view is to recognize that we've got to look at that before we make such a judgment. We're not really sure whether that's a good idea or not until we really investigate. I don't think we can really investigate anyway. Well, we can certainly investigate how we feel. We can certainly investigate our own mind. Mm. And that's what we're getting down to. It's not the outside world that we're investigating anyway, because we can just kind of take it on faith that the outside world is okay without us. It was okay yeah. before we were born. It'll be okay without us after we die. So I guess that, you know, <laughs> we can at least experience the world uh, in a more appropriate manner uh, by dealing with the inside. Mm -hmm. um, and here's actually a distinction in between the Western mentality and the Thai mentality, to where the Thai people kind of are taught as children for the child to find out and fit in with his, the network that he lives in so that he can find his own happy place within that society, within the framework. It's an mm -hmm. old traditional historical society. And uh, the Western society is built differently in the sense of social climbing or doing better for yourself or getting an education or always climbing in the sense of let's fix the outside world so that I can get more material goods or something because that will somehow fix the inside. Mm, indeed. Which is exactly the point that you were making just a moment ago. Okay. Why bother to do the investigation out there anyway? It was basically the question. And the answer is, you're right. 100% right. Uh, and so, in, in that regard, we can begin to see that the really noble right view is unconcerned with politics that we don't have to worry about who to vote for that we can just let it go that that's not my problem one way or the other it doesn't matter whether donald trump is in office a second time or biden gets in it's just not going to change how i feel unfortunately it will <laughs> change how i feel <laughs> pardon Unfortunately, it would change how I feel, but yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. 
but I but how I feel will will be based upon things that I want. Mm. And so if I don't want much, then it doesn't matter what uh, happens in in politics. But basically, it's two sides of the same coin or another way of saying that, that you cannot become a politician without having corrupt intentions. Someone who is pure in their intentions, don't <laughs> they don't bother. Mm, the very best people that we can have as our leaders are never the leaders. We only get the trash. I, I, I'm used to think as they're just the best shark in the pool. Say that again. They're just the best sharks in the pool. Your sharks, the... The sharks, okay. Yeah. Mm. To succeed in politics, you have to be a shark, basically. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, That's how I see it. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, there was a sign that I saw when I was in Washington, D.C. I saw it in several offices, and so it must have been a fad going around right then. And it was just a regular piece of paper that was Xeroxed with a drawing on it. And it showed a guy in a pool or a swamp, and there were four alligators there on his four quarters. And the caption is, is that it's hard to remember when you're up to your hips in alligators that your original intention was to drain the swamp. <laughs> so now when Donald Trump talks about draining the swamp, what he means is adding alligators to it. Mm. Uh, and I guess if, if the swamp is completely full of alligators, there's not so much swamp there anymore. <laughs> um, but in any case, this is exactly right, that our job is not to fix politics. It's not to fix the global warming. The question is, is that if your toes get wet, can you walk? Yeah. Yeah. Just okay. <laughs> if it gets hot, can you get cool? Or can you at least enjoy the heat? That's the, uh, the better attitude. We've all, always got to bring it back to that the issue is in the mind. It is mm. not out there in the world. It And is so always, always, always in the mind, always, because the world out there is in the mind also. So precisely, and we we have been spending a lot of time picking up bits and pieces in the world and putting it in our library on the inside, and we use that library a lot. But unfortunately, we don't use it only for information. We also use that library to figure out how to feel. Yeah. And so we wind up feeling the way that we have been feeling instead of feeling the way we want to feel. I would even say that the library got a life on its own and it's telling us how to feel, yes, how to behave and we're identifying with that. Well, another quality of it, which I think that you're just barely touching on, is that it is both dense and fluid, that it's constantly being added upon while other old memories are being forgotten and other things like that. Each But that there, there's basically a habit system in there, or let us say a filing system, and that too can be rearranged, so that we can begin yeah. to choose how we're going to feel. 
And the best way to do that is by using more new, <clears throat> let us say, new information or what's going on now rather than relying upon the way, the old past ways of feeling. Mm. But again, this is a, back to the Eightfold Noble Path because now what we're beginning to look at is this quality of sati. And now sati so directly fits in with right noble view. <clears throat> with right sati, with the waking up, so that we've got the attitude, or not the attitude, but the view. The, our view, our worldview is that it is better to feel good than it is to feel bad. Or another part of that worldview, it is better to be woken up than it is to remain asleep. Or it's better to live here now than it is to live in the past. And all of this is a view that is possibly unified to the point that all of these various ways of speaking about it don't rise to the level of speech or language. All of these ways of speaking, better to do this than that, etc. Uh, it doesn't rise to the level of um, uh, a concept, but it can. So that part of it can be very quick, in the sense that uh, the waking up. The waking up always is accompanied with this right view that springs into action, recognizing, oh, my intention was to watch the breath and start to let the mind wander away. With the, um, the right attitude here is that it's better to control the mind than it is to let it wander, or it's better to train it into um, uh, usefulness rather than leaving it wild. So this is basically the right attitude or the right view that we have. And so this is when we begin to then dedicate to the practice of sati mm. so that we continue to wake up more and more. And with sati comes uh, right uh, effort. Now, right view, right effort, and uh, right sati that we're talking about in the beginning is just ordinary right effort, right view, uh, and right sati. But there comes a point when uh, the view also becomes quite noble. And in that regard, then the sati also becomes noble, as does the effort. And what is that point of nobility has to do with the understanding that basically we can say it this way. I'm not my personality. I am not who I thought I was. Mm. But I can, in fact, change. And that's when the, uh, the practice of uh, Anapanasati or meditation changes to the noble quality. Mm. That noble quality of I can do this. I can change this. And so a great deal of this nobility has to do with one's attitude. The ordinary attitude of an ordinary person is generally the, uh, the attitude of being uh, one down, beaten, taken over, uh, do what we're told to do. Uh, we can call it victim. Um, <clears throat> Eric, oh, excuse me, uh, Fritz Perls called it uh, top dog, bottom dog, that we always feel like that we're, we're on the bottom of the heap mm -hmm. rather than on top. 
but the attitude to change that brings the mind out of that state of um, ordinary mind is that quality of understanding, no, I am not that loser. Yeah. I'm not that. I am what I want to be. I am not that personality, that that personality, in fact, is not permanent or even um, long lasting and difficult to change. That it keeps going back to the place that it was, but every time we wake up, we can easily change it. So we have to keep practicing over and over and over and over again to change it. But that every time that we remember to change it, we can change it. And after we're doing that more and more, we get to begin to have that attitude of, I can do this. I can make changes. Mm. I will change. I know I can change for the better, that I do not have to suffer. I can sit here and not suffer. Thank you very much. And that, and, <laughs> Thank you. <and> that, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and that's when the mind uh, truly takes on the noble quality of no longer attaching then to the world, especially the world of rules, rituals, laws, references, ways of doing things, shoulds, goods. Um, we begin to see the emptiness in the ceremonies. Certainly there are ceremonies that have some value, but by and large, ceremonies do not deliver what people hope for them to deliver. An example of that is baptism. <laughs> okay, yeah. the ceremony is, uh, is to free you from your sins, with basically the kind of promise built under it is to go and sin no more. And yet within one day, it doesn't even take 24 hours for the guy to be back in descent. He didn't change. It did that, <laughs> that ceremony of taking Jesus as your savior so that you can be saved from your sin proves hollow almost immediately. Yeah. Well, baptism was based on, on some, something kind of different. <clears throat> you have to be renewed. You, you have to die to your to, to self basically and and be reborn so it, it makes sense but it's not used at all in this way it means <laughs> right. exactly. it's, his... it's not a ceremony that we go through but you're exactly mm -hmm. right when we recognize that we can change that's in fact the death of the old self and this mm -hmm. is the rebirth that that uh uh, that Jesus is talking about. Mm. And in the Buddhist literature, we call this or think of this as a change of lineage. Okay. Which is exactly the same thing. The mm. change of the lineage is now you're no longer uh, the son of that man in that village or uh, living that lifestyle with the same identities that, mm. that that had, and now you're born in the group of nobles, mm. the higher quality, the high class people. This is what that noble right view is all about, which is basically taking responsibility that we can live our lives happily. Mm. I, I have a part on, in me that don't like so much the high class 
the way to say it. For me, for me, there there is no loser, no winner. There is no high class, no low class. It's it just everybody is on the path somewhere, and that's all. But that's a very noble view. Mm. Okay. <laughs> that's a noble view. Mm. And most people don't have that kind of noble view. Mm. So you're coming out of that ordinary uh, mindset uh, that that is based upon good and bad and right and wrong and the values and what value things have. That we can begin to see that almost everything of value has more to do with an emotional component than an actual real value. Mm. For instance, why is gold $2,500 an ounce now? Something in that range. Oh, you follow follow that? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm talking about it in the sense of why does gold have a value? Well, um, what is it about gold that has a value? There is, for me, there is something really interesting with gold is that it's the flesh of the gods. Because but that's uh, just a story. Yes, it's a story. You know, it's symbolical. It's it reminds uh, of the color of the sun, etc. So for me, it comes from there. But basically, but it other things value. have the color of the sun. Uh, totally, totally. Okay, <laughs> it it's soft and malleable. But other other metals mm. are soft and malleable. Indeed, none of. Okay, anyway, so you're but... you're getting. Okay, so the reason that gold has its value is because a lot of people for a long time have thought that it had value. Exactly. It's a mental construction. It's It's not real. It's an invention, a human invention. The value Mm. of gold is a human invention. Mm. And the value of poo is a human invention also. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's based generally upon whether I like it or I don't like it. So it's mm. all based back in back into feelings. Exactly. And so when we understand this Eightfold to Noble Path and how these components fit together, including right noble view, which again gives rise to right noble sati and right noble uh, effort that leads to right noble attitude, this then develops the uh, the thing that's called, or what's the object of this, is what we would call the unification of mind. That when one's mind is noble, the mind is unified. Mm. For instance, it's not lacking or wanting anything. It's got all that it needs. So it doesn't need to feel secure. It already feels secure. Another example of that would be that one who has a noble mind doesn't tell lies because the truth will do the fact, Mm. the plain facts of the truth, the reality of the situation, rather than uh, trying to lie for some advantage. I have the feeling, I have the feeling that um, you have to give up all notion about surviving, right? Uh, What? Uh, No. All Sorry. notion about survival. Uh, I could possibly pound that statement into what the Buddha's term would be, fearlessness. Exactly, yeah. 
to become fearless, even though we know that we're not going to survive. Mm -hmm. The reality of the situation, we're not going to survive. No. Okay, but a lot of people are in denial about that. That's why they want to feel secure, because they want to survive without Mm -hmm. recognizing you're not going to. (laughs) Yeah, but people are trying to... um maximize their chance of surviving or make it try to make it longer but basically i think it's the root of the fear the survival instinct exactly exactly this is um a major teaching of the buddha but we can also see how modern science uses uh, the term instincts to fit in with that Mm. that there is a primary instinct which is called self-preservation instinct we have the delusion that there is a self there but what's really is going on this mechanism that's actually in operation is a an organism protection instinct that is designed to protect the organism now if we did not have that uh organism in uh instinct for self-preservation then then people would normally die very young or Mm -hmm. we wouldn't even have mastered as a species Mm -hmm. or we may have not even made it into mammalhood. This survival instinct is there and it keeps species alive as long as they can, but it eventually fails. But the job of the self-preservation instinct is to keep each individual animal alive and the way that it does that is through sounding an alarm when danger comes. Mm -hmm. And that alarm that is sounded is experienced in the form of the feeling of fear. Okay, so when we can work on our fear to the point of recognizing that almost all fear is uh, a false positive or a false alarm, Mm -hmm. that there's nothing really to fear. But we don't want to destroy that instinct that brings fear. We just wanted to uh, <laughs> clean up his act, <laughs> to uh, uh, become uh, wiser, to make better calls, uh, so that it only uh, is there to keep us alive when we're in the danger of losing life. Other than that, we do not need the self-preservation instinct not in modern society, and yet look how much uh, fear there is in our society. And in fact, we create danger with fear. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but we can't solve the problems of society with this knowledge, but we can begin to say, I do not have to feel fear. There's no reason to feel fear. And the only time that you really need to see that and talk about it to yourself is when you recognize that you're in a state of fear or that you recognize that if you weren't looking at what you were doing, you would be in a state of fear. Mm. Because generally people, when they're in a state of fear, they say, I am afraid. Mm. They become that fear. The self, in fact, is the fear itself. Until we can recognize, wait a minute, I'm not that fear. That's just a mechanism 
It's just a bunch of chemicals in the brain. That's not who I am. I am not my own personality. When we recognize that, that's the same thing as when the Buddha said, Aha, uh-huh. I see you, Mara. Aha, mm. uh-huh. I see you, fear. And that we can do this with fear right along. In fact, fear is something to start understanding right from the very beginning of practice. But generally, it's about the last thing that finally go. But by working on it individually, all of the stuff on top of it, those higher layers begin to peel away so that we Mm. can get right down to the basic survival instinct. And how we do that is by practicing over and over, getting ourselves in the state of no fear, which means become satisfied, to become secure, to feel safe, to keep practicing feeling good. Every time you can remember to feel safe and secure and happy, you can change those thoughts away of, of fear. Here I have the feeling that um, it's working on a, on a thread, basically. Because, to, because this security, this, this feeling of thing, feeling safe, etc., usually comes with securing your survival. I need the money, I need the house, I need this, I need that. So I will not be in the street in five years. I need to do this, I need to do that. But in fact, that is obeying the fear in a way. Because you're playing the survival game here. When uh, maybe to feel really secure and and really to to be good would be to not follow all this kind of stuff and do something totally different that could kill you eventually tomorrow with more higher probability to kill you tomorrow than the secure way. But it will still be better for you, mentally speaking. You will not be afraid of death because death means nothing, basically. And you you, you will just follow maybe a shorter path, which will be more meaningful and would bring you eventually to closer to enlightenment and liberation or whatever. Um, Precisely. Yeah. But the path may be shorter or maybe longer. You don't know that. But, you know, so here you see it's it's navigating between, uh, okay, if I want to feel secure, there is this old classical way of gathering stuffs, basically. Or uh-huh. there is just so trust people when they get all of that stuff, they still don't feel secure, so they exactly. want a lot more e- of it. Exactly, exactly. It, it's it's never going to, to fulfill you eventually. Or you have to basically just to trust life and trust your instinct. Well, a better way of saying that though is to not necessarily trust the instincts, other than you can trust the instincts to go haywire. <laughs> and you can trust them to do that. But a better way to saying it is, is trust your own wisdom. Mm-hmm. To trust your own way of recognizing you can see what's going on. Mm. And that and you can see it in time so that you can throw these hindrances out of the way and you can live your life the way you want to. Mm. And eventually, if you're making a mistake, well, if you were wrong you will have another life to, to do it again. Say that again? If you made a mistake, let's say, let, let's say you, you, 
were mistaken in, in your choice, etc., and it ends badly and you die or whatever, you will have okay. another life to try it again. Reincarnation, basically. I'm not quite that I got all of that. You're saying uh, that after you die, that you have I'm, another chance? Is that I'm what saying you're saying? That, I'm saying that uh, when you're making a choice, uh, some things that can eventually help you to uh, follow your wisdom instead of the secure materialistic way okay. is to think that if you if you make a, if you made a mistake, basically if your path is short and you, you die or whatever, you will eventually have another life to correct this mistake. Um, I'm not sure about that. Uh -huh. Okay. Not sure about that. Um, that if we understand that there is uh, no personality or no self within the personality, you can also begin to understand that the personality itself then is also temporary mm -hmm. because it's subject to change. And everything that uh, uh, comes together falls back apart. That's what the whole teaching of Nietzsche is. Yeah. That everything falls apart, everything dies, and everything has to be relinquished okay. eventually. Um, I think and, here it's a, it's a Theravada point, uh, position of, of indeed not uh, believing in some kind of soul. Precisely. Yeah. Where I do. Okay. So, well, yes. it doesn't matter whether no. you do or not. What matters is can you practice correctly exactly. long enough so we you can figure out that you don't need those beliefs. <laughs> that in fact it doesn't matter whether you survive after death or not. The question mm. is can you live this life happily? Yeah. And a way of looking at it is, is that if you can learn to live your life happily in this life, then it doesn't really matter the next life. But if you live this life miserably, then then you care about the next life, which is basically the same thing as in the future. We can mm -hmm. actually put that whole idea of being reborn in the next life as just future. Mm. Yeah, you yeah, can't. Yeah. We can't count on the future. We don't know what the future is no. going to bring. I don't and even. So I'm not even sure that the future is, exists. Okay. All right. Well, if the future itself doesn't exist, which is actually a good right view to have, then um, what or who is it that can be reborn in that future that doesn't exist? Hmm. Yeah, of course. And so in that regard, we don't have to worry about what the future is going to be at all. The question is, can we be happy now? Mm. You know, that's a point about people. They, they think, uh, in fact, much of the religions of the world are built upon hope for a better future. Mm. In one way or another, is always hope for a better future. But the, the whole teaching about the Buddha is, is that um, if we can't get a better right now, there is no hope for a better future because whenever that future comes, it will get here 
on time, and we will call it now when it does arrive. Mm. So hope for a better future. We might as well go ahead and get our future better right now because we can't get the future better, but we can practice on making right now better. Mm. Indeed. And so this is what we're practicing with the teachings of the Buddha. We don't care about tomorrow. The tomorrow may never come. Our ideas of it may never happen. We're not even, as you say, even sure that there is a future, mm. which is exactly one of the questions that uh, the Buddha asked a, a group of monks. This is in Sutta number 101 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where these guys were actually self-flagellating, beating themselves. And the Buddha asked them, why are you doing this? And they're saying, oh, we're burning off old bad karma from the past. And, and the Buddha asked him, well, how do you know you were bad in the past? And they <laughs> muscled around a bit. And then he says, how do you even know you were in the past? Mm. And then he was pointing out that when you start to uh, self-flagellate now, you are not, in fact, burning off old bad actions. You're creating new bad actions right now. And the result of that is the lacerations you're putting into the back when you're whipping yourself. Mm. Go ahead. Uh, a little bit earlier, you were talking about karma that will uh, come and dig, up, dig you up from, from the grave. But you were saying it was uh, the ordinary... Um, That's the path. ordinary view. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. That is from the ordinary view. Hmm. The noble view is to recognize the truth of it is, is that we don't know. Hmm. Okay. It's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of right now we don't know. We do not know what's beyond the grave. Hmm. And we can be honest with ourselves about that. And you, and you, in fact, were honest when you said you don't even know if the future exists. Because guess what? Yeah. Every every time a future comes, it when does it arrive? No. Now. <laughs> there is no future. We just no. proved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I know that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I think there is no space either. So no time, no space. No time, no space, nothing to do. But the question is, is how are we going to feel about that? Mm. Because that's something that we do have some control over. Whether time or space exists or not, we do not have control over it, whether we understand it or not. We have no control over it. Mm. It's like the outside world. But what we do have control over is uh, whether we're going to wake up and see how we feel, how we think, and knowing that we can change that. When am I going to wake up? I have to, to tell you it's going to be now. Yeah. <laughs> Every time that you do wake yeah. up, it's always right now. No. It's not a it's not a permanent thing or a long term thing mm. or a one time show kind of thing. Mm. It's a one trick pony, but that pony needs to do that trick over and over and over and over and over again. It's not just one show. It's it's uh, waking up and waking up and waking up and waking up over and over and over again. Because we go back to sleep very easily. Oh, yes. Okay, so the first skill that we have to uh, work on is the skill of waking up and getting the mind uh, in good shape, get it fit for work. That's mm. the first skill, is to wake up and to be able to get, get the mind woken up. It's a skill, and that that would be then the skill of 
uh, bringing the mind to a state of uh, fit for work, happy, joyful, can see, well oxygenated, etc. Then mm. the next skill is the skill of learning how to maintain that state, to uh, sustain it, to suspend it, that you apply your mind to that state, and then you keep it in that state. Mm. So this is the way that we would practice this over and over and over again, is to get the mind fit for work, and then keep the mind fit for work. Mm. The question is, well, how do you keep the mind fit for work? And that is, do you put the mind to work to guard to make sure that the kind of thoughts you have are the kind of thoughts that are going to keep you in this state and yeah. not allow the kind of thoughts come in that's going to take you away from that state. Now, mm. if we can learn to practice that and do it uh, on a regular basis, it changes one's life completely. Our personality is completely transformed. It won't be the same person that you were, but you have to remember it every time. Every time we have to keep remembering to do it, but over time it begins easier to remember because the skill of remembering it is growing. Mm. But it all has to do then with this uh, right, noble view that mm. we have. That then with the right, noble view, right sati, right effort, and uh, right, noble attitude brings us to this state of the unification of mind. Mm. And that unification of mind will also be free from doubt, as well as we talked about it before. Another way is that the mind is free from doubt, because doubt tends to scatter us. Is it this? Is it that? That's actually doubt is a kind of lying to ourselves. We can't figure out what the truth is. Mm. Uh, so when we can get the mind unified, that means we can see things directly. We know what's going on, and uh, we're quite satisfied with that. And so uh, when the mind is in that kind of place, that means we don't want anything. We're satisfied with the way things are. Mm. So we're unlikely to go harm people to get something that we want if we don't want anything. So our, our behavior, our morality is very high quality. Mm. And so this is the noble path, is to get the mind unified, and much of the unification has to do with getting the right attitude that I can clean the mind, I can get it straightened out, I can throw the rubbish out, I can, in fact, feel the way I want to feel. I have the feeling that uh, I did some progress on this side this last month, even this last weeks, um, it's still coming back indeed, again and again, the old behaviors, the old loops of negative thinking. But overall, I think I have a better control over them. Still a work in progress, a lot of work in progress, actually. But okay. uh, yeah. Well, one of the things that I will point out, which most students, uh, um, until, I, until it's pointed out to them, it seems counterintuitive. And that is, is that the beginning student is not very good at sati and therefore is not catching the mind wandering away very often. But when sati really gets going, when we really gain some skill in it, we begin to see the mind wandering away a lot. We begin to really look at what's going on under there 
and it is a turmoil, and many times we don't like it, and we think that I'm getting worse, where in fact, no, you're getting a lot better. You're beginning to see things you didn't see before. Yep, that's very true, the feeling that you're getting worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But at the same time, feeling that you're getting, well, the feeling that I'm getting worse, because it's the feeling, Uh, but at the same time, to see the mechanism and to see how everything is working, so. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So, take that in and say, uh-huh, I can see that too. Uh-huh, <laughs> I can see that I feel bad because I'm doing something good. But by doing something good, I'm uncovering something bad and I don't want to see the bad stuff. <laughs> exactly. No, it's exactly that, yeah. Mm. Well, that's the way to keep practicing. Good for you. You're making progress. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would like I would like to uh, stop the call here if you don't mind. That seems yes. I brought it down, right down to this point. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> and the last thing to ask is, do you have any questions? And your answer is goodbye. So I got it. <laughs> I don't have any questions. That was very clear. Thank you. Very interesting. And um, unless um, Dean can on the ways to um, train the mind. Well, it's going to go to meditation and this kind of stuff, but of course. Uh, but we will talk about that uh, next time if you, if you would like. Okay, yes, you can ask a question and we'll go right off in that direction. Exactly, that would be fine. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much and uh, good evening to you. And good uh, evening. Talk, to you talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>